This is the Zens Podcast on Science, Technology and Entrepreneurship. I'm your host Zenrong Yap and today our guest is Paul Festo. He is a PhD candidate in Computer Science at Imperial College London working on applying reinforcement learning to sepsis. He is passionate about bringing AI and machine learning to the healthcare industry and hoping to change lives. In his free time, he plays the piano Afterwards, he'll talk about how we're just a few key actions away from amazing experiences. He's a great guy to talk to, and I'm very happy he's here today. Welcome to the podcast, Paul. Thank you very much. Yes. Happy to be here. So it's been a while since I've seen you. How have you been? Yeah, it's been all right. You know, um, I've got a big conference deadline coming up, so I've been working on this, a bit of, bit of theory, um, working on other projects on the side. So those last few weeks have been, to say the least, well busy. So what is your PhD project on? Could you tell us a little bit about that? Oh wow, that's, that's I would say, a very wide question, uh, which I will hopefully answer in like two years with a 100 pages thesis or something. Um, but to get things in a nutshell, uh, my PhD project is about how to bring AI-based clinical decision support systems, so AI tools that help doctors take decisions to the real world safely. How to assess the safety of AI-based clinical decision support systems. That's the title of my PhD. It's on sepsis, right? So maybe you could explain what sepsis is about as well. Yeah, so the thing is, um, despite my project being interested in how do you generally assess the safety of this type of system, I am very fortunate to work in a lab at Imperial College, directed by two brilliant researchers, Aldo Faisal and Matteo Komarovsky who worked on the system three, four years ago, developed something they called the AI clinician, which is a clinical decision support system that helps treating sepsis. Sepsis is amongst the leading causes of deaths in hospitals nowadays. It's something that happens, essentially can happen from any type of infection. Just when an infectious agent just starts going away from a local infection that you may have somewhere and spreads through your blood. By spreading through this, your blood, it will reach all the organs in your body, including those that which you, you wouldn't be very happy that they're infected, like your your heart, your lungs. Those are not things you want to have attacked, right? Yeah, um, not. Yeah. So um, the, this infectious agent will spread through your blood, and this attacking your organs plus the severe immune response to your body eventually kill the patient. The way this is being treated in hospital is when sepsis goes wrong and goes into septic shock, you're put into ICU beds, which is just beds in hospital where everything about you is being recorded, and you have syringes in you 24-7 to inject you drugs at any point in time. Um, the way this is being treated, so, it's those infectious agents, they're spreading through your body and attacking you little by little, and it's just a race between trying to eliminate those before they eliminate you. The way this works is doctors give you antibiotics of, or whatever drug is necessary to kill those infectious agents. And while the agent spreads throughout you, this drug will eliminate the agent, but the doctors need to maintain you alive long enough for the drug to kill the agent before the agent kills you, essentially. Mm. What exactly are you doing? Then? You're applying reinforcement learning to looking at all the data that you get from the ICU beds and sensors. Yeah. So what's so fantastic about ICU beds is that when a patient is in an ICU bed, they are plugged into sensors that measure lots, lots of different things about them. 
their temperature, their heart rate, their blood pressure, many, many, many different things. And those sensors are connected to computers. So it is very easy to get a lot of data out of ICU intensive care units. By the way, this is what ICU means, mm -hmm. intensive care units. It is very easy to get a lot of data from intensive care units, and this is what a few hospitals have been doing for several years now, which means that we now have huge databases. And the most famous one from the US is called MIMIC, with massive data about things happening in the ICU, with patients' features being recorded 24-7, and we have very detailed measures of this. And the fact that we now have this huge amount of data allows AI researchers, data scientists, to get some value out of this data, right? This is mm. what people, data scientists do in company, well, we're doing the same thing with healthcare data. And this is what has allowed both my supervisors to create the system called the AI clinician, where they basically turn the problem into a reinforcement learning problem and, yeah, trained an agent to maximize patient survival. How do you turn it into a reinforcement learning problem? How do you frame it that way, right? And also maybe just a little bit about reinforcement learning as well and how it's different to other machine learning methods. Yeah, so in machine learning, you'd essentially have three big families of algorithms, supervised learning, unsupervised learning, and reinforcement learning. Supervised learning is all about learning things from examples. You want to classify images. This is supervised learning because you have as input images of things and as output, maybe the label of what the thing is. When you want to dissociate cats from dogs, you have loads of images of cats, yeah. loads of images of dogs. And yeah, classical example, but you know, it works as well if you want to classify Pokemon somewhere. <laughs> you can do whatever. Have you tried doing that before? <laughs> no, no, but I've seen people try this. <laughs> definitely, definitely. Yeah. yeah, people are having fun in the AI community. So that's supervised learning, right? Learning from examples, you have A maps to B and you're trying to learn the map from A to B. Then you have unsupervised learning. Unsupervised learning is you're trying to learn something just from a row bunch of data. For example, uh, clustering data together is an example of unsupervised learning. Like yeah. K-means, we'll be talking about this again later on if like, <laughs> the, the way our reinforcement learning problem is being phrased. And reinforcement learning is learning by uh, acting in an environment and having reward from that environment. So if you think about it, reinforcement learning is a bit like the way you learned when you grew up or the way humans learned when they evolved. Very basic, like you see fire, the first time you put your hand in the fire, it burns and it hurts. <laughs> so you don't put your hand in the yeah. fire anymore. You see an apple, the first time you eat an apple, it feels good and then you're energized. That's cool, you got a positive signal from eating an apple. So you're incentivized to eat apples again and not put your hands in the fire again. Mm -hmm. Well, reinforcement learning is all about this. You have algorithms, agents, that evolve in environments and learn to maximize the reward that they will get from this environment and minimize the penalty that they will get, which is one is just minus the other. If you like a more recent illustration of reinforcement learning, you can think about the, the, the algorithms that play chess. Right. Mm -hmm. Those algorithms are AI agents, virtual players, that play in a world, some chessboards, taking actions, they move pieces in order to maximize the reward that they will get by maximizing the number of games that they will win. Every time these agents win games, they get positive rewards, and so they are incentivized to find the behavior that will make them win on and on and on and on and on and on. Of course, the state-of-the-art algorithms that play chess nowadays 
are more complex than this and you cannot summarize them in 30 seconds just the way I attempted to. But it's a good illustration of reinforcement learning in the sense that the agent, a player, is learning to act, move pieces in an environment on a chessboard to optimize a reward. In this case, to win as many games as possible. And if you just change the different elements that make up the reinforcement learning problem, in other words, the world, the agent, and the, act the actions and the reward, well, you can phrase this in a healthcare setting. In the healthcare settings, what do doctors do? Doctors act on patients, the world, they recommend drugs, they, take you to they tell you to take your pills, mm -hmm. and what they want is you to do as well as possible. That's the reward that they get. And in, in the case of sepsis and intensive care units, we're interested in two drugs in particular that are here to um, deal with how your veins and blood vessels behave. Um, because basically problem in the ICU is there are lots of organs which we can supplement for you. Um, if your kidney is having problems, we can put you in dialysis machine. Yeah. If uh, your lungs are having a problem, we can put you on a mechanical ventilation machine. Those are organs that we can supplement. We cannot supplement a whole cardiovascular system. This is, this is where the challenge lies in sepsis management, or one of the big challenges lies. So this is the challenge we're interested in. And so the way this is phrased as a reinforcement learning problem is we're always looking for those same things. An environment, actions, and reward. The environment, patients, actions, those drugs that deal with their cardiovascular system, namely vasopressors and fluids, and reward, well, has the patient survived or not? Mm. And once you've framed the problem like this, well, it just looks like very much a reinforcement learning problem, where you have an agent that acts in a world to maximize the reward that it gets. And I think that's one of the that's one of the things that make reinforcement learning so interesting is as long as you can frame a problem this way, you have loads of algorithms in the state of the art that were, you know, designed to solve this this specific problem. I see. So would you almost consider it like gamifying the the study of how to cure sepsis? Almost like that. Yeah, I mean, so there's an additional challenge when, when working in healthcare, but I like your example of gamification because a lot of reinforcement learning paper, they illustrate their algorithm actually on video games. Yeah. Because video games are great examples of this. You have an agent, the player, that acts in an environment, the game, to maximize a reward, to get a, a score that's as high as possible. We've all played video games. We know how exciting yeah. it is to be high on the leaderboards where we're making algorithms do the same thing now. Those have the the huge advantage that in those cases you can have an agent that directly acts on its environment without too many harmful cons consequences. Yeah. If you teach an agent to play Pac-Man, well, you know, the agent will not be perfect at first. It's called machine learning, meaning that at the beginning the algorithm was dumb and has learned, yeah. right? <laughs> and well, while the algorithm was dumb on Pac-Man, it was probably eaten by the ghosts very fast, maybe even ran into the ghosts. Yeah. And it's not a big deal when you're teaching an algorithm to play Pac-Man, because, well, if you're eaten by a ghost, you're eaten by a virtual ghost on a virtual game. Mm. No big deal, it's just bits on a machine. Who cares? The challenge with working with healthcare applications, and particularly challenging in the case of treating sepsis, the case we're working on, because sepsis is a disease of which people die, 
is that you cannot have an agent that learns directly on patients. Because as I've said, at the origin of its training, an agent is dumb. And no. while being eaten by the ghost on Pac-Man is not that big of a deal, having a patient that would unfortunately pass away because you've been training an algorithm on live people, that's not a thing, right? Yeah. So researchers came up with ways to train reinforcement learning agents by observing behavior for somebody else. There's maybe suboptimal, but at least learning without interacting directly with the environment. That's an example with healthcare, where you don't want the agent to directly interact with its environment because you know those very problematic consequences. But it could also be a thing if, for example, somebody was to train a robot with reinforcement training who is aimed at going on Mars at some point. Mm-hmm. Like you don't want to send your robot on Mars, which would cost a tremendous amount of money, and then start having the robot learn there and crash after three steps. That's not <laughs> happening. It would be a huge waste of money. Therefore, a solution to this would be having the robot learn from piece of data that you've captured, but not by directly interacting with the world, which is kind of what we're doing in the reinforcement training for healthcare. I, I suppose you have to be really confident that your reinforcement learning algorithm has like learned the game enough, right? Mm-hmm. Probably quite a lot of people would be quite uncomfortable if you see it as gamifying healthcare, you know? How would you navigate that and explaining that that's what pe- people have previously been doing? Do, do you mean like getting the, the transition from something which is just an algorithm to something that can help with patients or convincing patients that this is this is a good technology for them? Is yeah, this the I think it's more on the convincing side. Oh, yeah. yeah. Well, first of all, I think a very important statement is that we do not see AI algorithms, at least in our team, as something that will replace doctors, mm-hmm. right? To make our case 100% clear, this is not about replacing doctors. There's no way we will replace human doctors at the mm-hmm. brilliant job that they're doing. Yeah. What we're doing is building smarter and better tools to help them do their job more efficiently and maybe remove some burden off of their shoulders. Mm. So I think this is already a big step in helping to convince patients is that in the end, maybe you've seen some marketing campaigns or whatever the day that maybe this becomes a product that this AI now helps treating patients. Well, while this may sound very fantastic and futuristic, in the end, the only thing it will be at least in the near future, is a few numbers on the screen telling to the doctors, hey, if I was you, maybe I'd do this, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. Or maybe it's one more alarm in the hospital. There already are alarms if a sensor turns off. So it's just similar form of alarm, maybe smarter or some, how do you say this? Like the different in- ways clinicians have had information with the evolution of technology has changed. It has went from good old paper notes to now very nice screens that display the information live. Which is the next step of this? It's a bit more information on that screen that will help them take more informed decision. But this is definitely not about replacing doctors. Mm-hmm. And I think that you know putting things in perspective really helps people acknowledging that this is not that big of a deal. We're not putting them in like a fridge or an oven 
for them to be cured and you know we put them in the yeah. thing we press a button <coughs> we come back three weeks later and see whether they're still alive yeah. that, that's not the way we envision things far from that I, I think it's good that you made that distinction because it's not that you're just putting the patient in a machine and then you go autopilot right yeah. you still have that human element where it's actually just supporting decision making and maybe picking up some pieces of information that the doctor could have missed is to all bring it together and hopefully save the patient rather than uh, trying to make it a game. Yeah, it's just helping doctors, making them even more powerful than they are now. Yeah, yeah. because I, I know a couple diagnosis areas with machine learning, it's something like 98% accurate once you have so much data, mm -hmm. right? Yeah, because you get a lot of information from the ICU lab, yeah. right? How do you sift through the information from the patients and how do you package it in a way that the doctors can understand? Because the technology is still quite new, specifically for reinforcement learning applied to this. So yeah. How do you do that? Are you talking about how do I present the outcome, the output of the technology or how do we present the output of the technology to clinical teams or how do we make the whole patient information digestible for algorithms? Because in the end, doctors are used to working with the features that we feed to those algorithms. Because if we, if we measure those things in the first place, it's because they are useful to doctors. Um, for them, knowing how much of a chemical there is in the blood is something that helps them doing a diagnosis for X or Y. I'm not a doctor myself. I mm -hmm. don't have any degrees in medicine. So I'm not an expert as to how each individual chemical value or measurement of the pressure at spe a specific place in the body will help people do yeah. in the diagnosis. But those are figures that they are used to working with. I see. So you have to figure out what are the, what are the outputs that are understandable, right, from the doctors? Yeah, I think there are essentially two challenges in the problem that we're working with. One is turning this set of descriptive patient features that talk to humans in a way that's also going to talk to a computer that mm -hmm. the computer will understand. And the second challenge is, once we have an algorithm that works, how do you convince people that this algorithm actually works? And how do you make them understand how the algorithm takes decisions? And this goes into the realm of explainable artificial intelligence, explainable AI, which is a whole field in itself where people are trying to either design algorithms or present algorithms outcome so that they are understandable to humans. So how did you come to work on the PhD project that you're working on right now? Yeah, so I think interestingly, while this is always presented as a PhD project, I didn't go into this project for the, for the PhD side of things. Basically, so I studied in France before coming for a master's at Imperial. And while I looked for options to go abroad, I fell on uh, Aldo Faisal, who is now my PhD supervisor, realized that he was working on this project. He named the AI clinician, which looked like he could have a nice impact with this. So did my master's at Imperial, met this guy, had a nice connection. And then well, I was interested in how I could help him and his team push this project forward, because I really felt like this was something which in the coming few years could have an actual impact. And well, when I started looking for what kind of opportunities he was offering to work on this project. Turns out he was looking for PhD students, so I became a PhD student. Um, had he been looking for, 
I don't know, research assistants, I would be a research assistant. I'd be looking for software engineers, I'd be a software engineer, data scientist, I'd be a data scientist. It's more the project itself than the degree. Now, it just so happens that I'm working on the project that I found fantastic, and that as a bonus, at the end of everything, I'll get a degree. That's cool. <laughs> yeah, that's wonderful. I, I'm, I'm not going to complain for this. <laughs> so it's like, you're, you're, t you're motivated by the mission, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think, and now that I've had a, a chat with a few other PhD students as well, I really could not have gone a very theoretical PhD with something that would be maybe applied in the long term. For example, I have friends that do PhDs in maths who I have high respect for because they work on the very pure problems by sole passion. You know, it's the only thing yeah. that drives them forward without this feeling of potential application or maybe there will be an application 50 years down the line mm -hmm. but this is not the reason why they're solving things i need this application side of things this motivation that what i do has a purpose to go forward i really need this feeling of what i do is going to be useful in the end and have impact on our world mm -hmm. this is really what drives my motivation these days yeah i think people are very different right they value different things and i, th I think it was, it was quite cool i saw a I saw a talk given by a theoretical physicist at Imperial, actually. But this was on YouTube from mm -hmm. like eight years ago. And he said that um, when you work on theory, you are w working on problems where you're just the beginning, you know. People generations later mm -hmm. and after many years, maybe they'll be the ones to solve the problem, you know. But you're the beginning of a saga, basically. And with more applied uh, subjects, it, it is like wanting to see the impact of effect, how it affect people, you know. And uh, I think there's there's tremendous value in both. And yeah, as you said, high respect for all different types. Yeah, no, no. I mean, our world is so amazing because different people are driven by different things. Mm -hmm. And you were talking about this talk from the um, theoretical physics professor at Imperial. Well, I also remember a talk from a. Well, this was maybe in the in the 80s, 90s, an old talk from a guy at Imperial, once again recorded on YouTube. The guy presents the beginning of superconductors and bits of metal flying. And literally <laughs> he starts his talk with two magnets being like, here they attract, here they repulse each other. And he ends up with bits of metals flying around the circuit. And you know, this is a bit further in the process of science because he's not working on the pure theory. He has the pure theory that's already behind him. These are knowledge that we had at the time. He was just thinking, oh, what could we do with this thing? And the man had a vision of like, these bits of metals could be trains transporting people. <laughs> and now, 20, 30 years later, next thing you know, there are trains in Japan that do exactly this. <laughs> and this is also a fantastic moment of research to be in. And I've like, we went around the labs at Imperial three, four months ago, we toured some of the labs to, uh, to some students. And I saw some professors who also had this drive. They were like at the beginning of some form of an application with a vision. And like, if this works, it's gonna have, like, it's gonna become so much bigger. You know, those type of people, you see them manipulating bits of woods and metal in a, like in a cupboard somewhere. They mm -hmm. look like completely insane. But you have to acknowledge that the vision they have if this is something that becomes true and they're brilliant enough so that one day it will become true, that's going to be amazing. And you need all those different ranges of people from mm -hmm. the very 
pure theoreticists who build the foundations of one field, the people who first think about the applications that this theory could have, to those more on the, the end where I work, who tried to do to bridge the last gap for this to actually become something. Yeah, <laughs> it's honestly wonderful. I don't know if you heard of the talk by Feynman. There's plenty of room at the bottom. So Richard Feynman, this professor who is a Nobel laureate for quantum chromodynamics, right? Yeah. yeah and he, he talked about nanotechnology back, I don't know, maybe 40, 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. And he was, he was talking about how you can etch like a whole dictionary on the on the head of a nail, right? And then he gave a he gave a monetary prize for that, and like within within just a short time, maybe a year at the most. I can't remember what the exact time period was. They did it. <laughs> like, yeah. yeah. They, they used some sort of microscope or something. Uh, or no, lithography maybe. But the point is that it happened, and then it all started coming together. Nano coatings. Um, small, smaller and smaller things, drug delivery systems, mm-hmm. and uh, he gave a talk. About, I think it was like quantum computing at the same time as well. So it's like we're at the cusp of technology, and things yeah. just keep happening. You know, yeah. Sometimes it's just push, amazing. Sometimes pushing technology really leads to um, a wide range of great applications from something you wouldn't have expected. I think one of the best examples of this is uh, spatial research, like all the things mm-hmm. that people do in the International Space Station these days. Um, they are foundation- foundational to a lot of technologies that we will see happen in our lives at some point. And a lot of things are now used for something like in a way that they were not designed for originally. But that's fine. This is the way science goes and this is the way discoveries goes. So what other pieces of technology or types of technology are you interested in besides computing? Pieces of technology I'm interested in, that's um, I would say one thing that really fascinates me is all the smart devices we have around ourselves and specifically our smartphone Mm -hmm. Um, when you think about it a smartphone is something you have 24-7 with you and the functionalities that this device can have are almost endless. It's just about somebody having an idea at some point, making the effort into turning this into an app, and boom, it's one more functionality for your phone. <laughs> yeah. I'm always fascinated by, um, you know, when, when I was growing up, a big game everybody was, was playing was Grand Theft Auto. Oh, yeah. And a big thing was in this game, you could pull out your phone, tap two, three things, and you'd have a car coming up. You know? At this point, I was like, ah, that'd be so cool. Nowadays, there's Uber. Like, it's the same thing. It's the exact same thing. You pull out your phone, you press two, three things, you click on a button, you got a car coming up and bring you to your destination. And that's, that's one of the many amazing things that your mobile phone allows you. And so I find all the capabilities that mobile phones have nowadays already fascinating. But I'm also marveled by the fact that you're always just an idea away from a new brilliant functionality. Yeah. So, moral of the story, play more Grand Theft Auto if you, <laughs> you want to create a unicorn, right? Yeah. <laughs> Please don't do the one for rocket launchers. Um, <laughs> that would not be great. Yeah, yeah. So, uh, just coming back to your work, right? uh, what do you find is the most difficult part of your work? 
I think... <laughs> so um, that's that's an in interesting question because I can see this notion of difficult in two different ways. Uh, one is what makes the field I'm working in difficult, and the other one is what makes working on a PhD project like the one I'm working on difficult. Um, starting with the second one, I think um, what I've found the most challenging since the beginning of my PhD is just self-organization and managing different projects at the same time. Because working on a very applied side of things, mm. um, sometimes you can be very carried forward by very down-earth things, which are things that I love. But also you have to acknowledge that in order to get a PhD, you have to make some contribution to the state of the art. Yeah. Um, getting a PhD is not being is not all about being um, low income software engineer for four years. <laughs> you, have, you have to do a bit more than this. Uh, you you have to produce some actual science and push the state of the art, which is which are the things I'm focusing on now. Um, hopefully submitting to a deadline in May. Uh, is, that, is that how is that how quite a lot of computer scientists like PhD students in computer science see themselves? Like low yeah. income software engineers. No 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 no, no, no. <laughs> really not. As in, you get to work on fantastic problems. And I think it's sometimes a bit too tempting uh, because, you know, uh, most people who go do a PhD in computer science and AI and those type of domains, there are people who like coding, right? Yeah. Like, nobody's going to lie on this. <laughs> and sometimes it can be very easy to be a bit too carried forward in coding something that's actually oh, not going to be see. very useful. <laughs> yeah. So, yeah, it's actually, like, the students are more too blame themselves because you know you get carried forward by this project you find amazing but in the end it's not going what's going to push the state of the art forward uh, so i i guess it's uh, being careful to not get sucked into trying to build all the features to it and yeah <laughs> yeah make it look pretty and everything right yeah it's about the results that come of it yeah results and also the science and this reaches to the second bit of what makes a phd in ai challenging from my point of view is that ai is such a fast-paced fast -paced field like it there are hundreds of papers published every day uh, NeurIPS the biggest AI conference has had like a thousand papers accepted last year which is insane like for those who listen to us and are maybe not that familiar with the world of academia and research papers a research papers paper is you could say on average 10 pages long? Is yeah, that realistic? That sound, that sounds Something right. like this. Yeah, and very often the paper itself is not enough to understand what's happening. If you're not from the field, you have to look at two, three references. So going through a paper, or rather going through more than a paper a day would be very challenging and you do nothing else. Mm -hmm. So um, if you think about it, NeurIPS, last year a thousand papers. If you want to go through the whole of this, considering that it's one day, one paper, and to simplify, there are like 300 um, days a year, or 330 days a year that you can dedicate to reading papers. To go through one year of NeurIPS, you would need three years of life. The thing <laughs> is, bad luck for you. During the th those three years, two other NeurIPS have happened. So it's two other <laughs> thousand papers with you. Good luck. You know? it's, yeah. So it's a very fast-paced field. And also, um, I felt a bit recently the pressure of when you're working on a problem 
that has some interest around it, like that is useful to solve, you know that you're not the only one looking at that problem, hmm. which um, makes it great for humanity in general because many different brilliant minds are working on the same problem, which means that we're very likely to find the best solution and maybe other great solutions on the way that will help solving other things. But also it can sometimes make things frustrating as the researcher itself because sometimes the result that you've been working on for you know two three months if not more you're like oh yeah i'm having my paper submitted soon and you realize something somebody published something very similar two weeks ago (laughs) oh no bad luck (laughs) yeah like that's (laughs) that's the, the the default of this thing so huge advantage we solve problems very fast for humanity lots of brilliant minds are working mm-hmm. on those problems that's amazing slight default well sometimes somebody solves the problem a little bit faster than you and bad luck you know you get all the glory for being first being second is not not that amazing yeah yeah so could you tell us about finding trends in machine learning papers through um, data analysis and visualizations like it's what you mentioned that you have been doing as well. yeah, yeah so as I said um, if one conference is a thousand papers there's no way you can go through all of those um, so one evening I was in my supervisor's office we we're checking something else and we we're like oh a new papers have come out let's check what we have and we filmed this huge list of papers and we we're like how are we going to filter this through and to which well an idea came to my mind of papers are basically just a bunch of text. Right? There, there are very nice figures, but the bulk of the paper is in the text. So if you want to know essentially what a conference talks about, you can just take the text of all the papers, do some data science on it, data visualization, whichever technique you want that is related to text, and you can get some information around this. So the question that we tried to answer that evening was, well, what are people talking about in Europe this year? Just at looking at two, three papers, it would be very easy to have our eyes being catched on the subjects that we work on, because those are words that we're familiar with and those are things that will naturally drag our interests. But another way to do this and to look at things in a bit more of a general way, taking a step back and being a bit less biased, would be, for example, doing what we did by taking all the paper titles putting this into an algorithm that filters all the words you don't need, the, uh, these these kind of things, those stop words, you remove all of those and then you do a world cloud. You just see what words pops up the most often, which group of words sometimes, because word clouds are smart enough to do semantic groups of word. Of word. For example, deep learning would not be deep in learning, but rather deep learning because the algorithm understands that those are two words that go together in their meaning. Um, and then you end up with a world cloud of in bigger the themes that people talk the most about and talk the most about in their paper in this conference and then yeah given the size of the words on your map you can just deduce what are the things that people are talking about in machine learning and realize that um, for example people are still working a lot on optimization despite us having great algorithms already a lot of papers are being published on optimization we look naturally at reinforcement learning because this is what our lab is doing and we notice that this is yeah still a big thing and that um, graph neural networks are rising these days people talk more and more about these things but the word becomes bigger in the workout oh so 
why do you think optimization methods are still so hot, I guess? Well, as in research into optimization. Yeah. I think they have the, like this field has the advantage of being at the core of everything. Yeah. Because when you think about it, if doing deep learning, doing machine learning is all about fitting model to some data by minimizing a function. Mm -hmm. Essentially, all deep learning algorithms you'll work with, or most of them, are you've got a model with parameters and you've got a loss that gives you a value. And by tweaking those parameters, you want to minimize that loss. It's basically all it is. Now, the way you build your model, how you choose your parameters, the loss that you choose, this is the things that you can tweak to make your AI models better. But in the end, you still have a set of parameters and a loss function that you dump into an optimization algorithm and you cross your fingers very hard so that this <laughs> finds your minimum that is sensible. Yeah. So a lot of algorithms use optimization methods and therefore finding a better optimization method kind of means improving all algorithms at the same time because they'll all be using this new method which will be better than the previous one. So because it's that core and if you see like dependencies as a tree, this is at the root of everything. So mm -hmm. if you uh, take the roots and bring it up a little bit, rise it a little bit, well, you'll rise the whole tree with it. Yeah, I see. So if you're looking for the purest thing in machine learning, it'd be an optimization then. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure about the question of more or less pure. Some people argue about what is, uh, you know, the pure science of, or um, what is hard in something else. I don't know, I feel like there are pure things to do in many different areas. For example, people who work with uh, graphs, you can do very pure things with graphs. It's not optimization yet, it's also useful for machine learning. Um, yeah, people work in representation learning, same thing, could be very pure, could be just PhD in algebra, if you, if you want to put it this way. It's yeah. still useful to machine learning, so I'm not sure that whether there are some more or less pure topics to work on. How does your PhD work tie into your mission to use data science, AI, and software engineering to bring value to the world? I remember that's what we had a chat about previously. Yeah, well, I think, you know, as I said, the reason why I embarked on this journey of making a PhD and making this PhD specifically is because um, I had the feeling that this was a project that was about to breach the actual world. And with this PhD, I have the amazing opportunity to work in one of the best teams in the world at the phase where they have a research product that was already well thought about and that is about to be brought to the real world. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just as if you were you were doing your PhD at NASA in the I don't know, 50s, 60s. <laughs> and you've heard of those people working on those things that they call rockets. <laughs> and you know that by the end of your fourth year fourth year of PhD, the first rocket launch will have happened. It's the exact same thing. It's like, I'm there just before this technology yeah. becomes a thing. So and I can see wave, everything. Right? <laughs> well, it's more, I can be part of the everything getting together. Mm -hmm. like people before me have done amazing work and I'm very fortunate to come at the time where this will reach like, concrete use and will be will be used in the actual world. That's amazing. Yeah. <laughs> Could you talk a little bit about 
the difference in like university and education in, in within data science, computer science, etc. In France compared to the UK, because that's where you did your undergraduate degree and came yeah, yeah. for a masters as well. Yeah, yeah. So as I said before coming to MPO for my masters, um, I studied in France, where we actually have a very different system. So now that I've been in the UK for like two years ish. Um, I've been used to telling people that what I did in France was my undergrad because people here reason in terms of undergrad, postgrad, masters, bachelor's, masters, these kind of things. Um, whereas in France, for people who want to do science, we have things working in a rather different way. So the way it works is we also have universities that do like undergrad, bachelor's degrees and master's degrees, but people who want to do science and particularly engineering, they go through a different route which is comprised of what we call preparatory classes and engineering schools. Um, and so a classical undergrad master's cycle in, a, in an English country would be like five years-ish, uh, maybe three years in your undergrad, two years in, a, in your master's. This would be a pretty standard scheme. And this is also the scheme that universities have in France. However, when you go through the preparatory classes uh, engineering school route, the first bit that you do is two years, Preparatory classes is two years, are two years, engineering schools are three years. So it's like kind of flipped on its head. And the way this works is during preparatory classes, you um, work on very theoretical science on many different domains for two years and you get ready for competitive exams. At the end of those two years, you take your competitive exams and depending on your ranking, you choose the school that you want to go to, essentially. I think one of the beauties of this system is as you do a lot of theory in many different fields i mean here when i talk about pe with people about what they do in university in their undergrad to the exception of a few degrees like i think um engineering at oxford is slightly different to this but usually people just work on one thing one thing like if you do mechanical engineering you do mechanical engineering for three years right whereas in preparatory classes we do theory in maths, pure maths. We would do uh, physics, mechanics, fluid dynamics, quantum physics. We would also work on chemistry, uh, like biochemistry, or um, how do you call this in English? Like the speed of reactions, computing those kind of things. Kinetics. Th yeah, kinetics. Uh, thermodynamics. Those old things that we went through we had a bit of biology as well. So this gives us a general knowledge and culture of how things are done in different domains and then once we're done with those two years of hard working theory well, let's put <laughs> let's put it this way like you know seeing the sun is a blessing in those years <laughs> because you really work a lot um but once you've gone through this you've just built a general culture for yourself which you will then once you go into any of those engineering schools apply to a more particular area in my case this was applied maths and data science but we've got engineering schools that do aeronautics, some that do biology, uh, some that do mechanical engineering, some that do um, material sciences, whatever, you know. Um, the schools are about applying the knowledge that you acquired during those three years of theory. But because you come from this background where you've done very theoretical things in two, um, in many different domains, then when you get to talk with people who work on something which is not your core specialty, well, you can maybe understand them a little bit better, right? I'm not an expert in mechanical engineering, 
but if I was to have a chat with a mechanical engineer, I could at least not be completely lost by the jargon that they, that they would use. <laughs> and maybe use the very basic notions that I have to understand better the problems that they're working with. And in France, we were very happy to um, educate engineers that will work in multidisciplinary teams. So it's always very helpful to be able to put yourself in the shoes of the people you're working with because then you understand their problematics better, uh, you understand what's going on for them better, which makes it for better team dynamic in general. I see. So it's quite similar, I guess, if you look at purely what you're learning to the like US system, I guess, where you start off more broad, but it's much more on the, for this case, the STEM side, right? You're doing basically all the subjects within, within like science and engineering and yeah. then yeah. well in the pro in project classes you also have philosophy classes oh really a bit of language yeah yeah <laughs> so they they don't let you go away without those bad boy essays <laughs> you know they, they still follow you wherever you go you still have to write those <laughs> yeah do you feel like you've had you had a little bit more time to explore that you're much more confident in the process that they have in france that you're in the right place and you're doing the right thing <clears throat> i feel very happy about uh, the direction that my education has taken um, so in France, some engineering schools are more applied than others. Um, generally what happens is for schools that aim at having their alumni placed more in management positions and stuff, uh, they are less very concrete and applied because you also taught management skills and those kind of things, like leadership skills, I see. Uh, which is kind of what the schools I was in taught me a little bit. Mm -hmm. So we had um, a teaching and we learned in a way that was a bit less practical and on the ground than what I had when coming here to the UK. Um, so I had ingrained a lot of theory and concepts before coming here. I had coded a little bit, of course, um, also on my own work and on several projects, but I don't think there is a year I have coded as much as during my master's year. <laughs> like, no, but seriously, the fact that, I mean, all right, one big difference was only in the fact that um, modules are marked in a very different way. In France, we only had something at the end of the module that would give you your grade for the module, like a final exam, and that was it. Whereas here, uh, sometimes up to 50% of the module was carried by courseworks. Courseworks were all about coding whatever you had learned in the lectures. And the great thing about working this way is that you're gonna learn a lot. Yes, it's gonna take a lot of time to code everything, and I mean, I had quite a bit of work during my master's year. Um, but if you can code an algorithm that solves the problem that your teachers give you, that your lecturers give you, then it means that you've understood what's going on because you've been able to build the thing from the bottom up. So you work a lot, you go through a bit of struggle, but that's the way you grow up, right? That's the way, that's the way you end up mastering something because you've you've gone through something that would not work if you had not understood it properly. Just as when you're learning to ride a bike, you're not gonna watch people riding bikes for two years and then be able to go on a bike and ride it. You're gonna have your bike in your backyard, you'll fall 10, 20, 100 times, but at the end of the day, you'll be able to ride your bike. Well, I feel like this is kind of the experience I've had with courseworks in my masters, which is 
yeah, the, lots of the algorithms I implemented, they did not, did not work first time I pressed run on my code like that. Yeah. Okay, that's fine. But I was learning. <laughs> the thing is, the essential thing at the end of the day is I went through those struggles. I understood why the algorithms were not, wor were not learning. And now I know how those algorithms work and I know how to use them. Because mm -hmm. it's one thing to, um, I mean, this is a bit more technical for people who are in IT, but it's one thing to import a library and use a function like library, fingers crossed, does something in your data and you're happy. It's something else to really understand what's happening under the hood and to use this algorithm in a smarter way. <laughs> Just now when you said trying to figure out what's going on and learning, it's like you're the agent in the in your own reinforcement yeah, learning yeah, yeah, kind of it, kind like of. environment. I mean, <laughs> this reminds me of this this funny anecdote. But when so my masters was just before COVID, so we were still fortunate enough to have in-person lectures. And Aldo, who was doing the reinforcement learning lectures, um, every time somebody would participate in the lecture, you know, because lectures are always more engaging when students from the audience are taking part. So every time somebody would participate he would like throw them a chocolate. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, same thing, giving people incentives to make the lectures even better. That was reinforcement learning just in front of our eyes. Yeah. We, we learned reinforcement learning by reinforcement. Yeah, <laughs> yeah it's, it's almost, uh, it almost feels like we're in a simulation, but we're specifically the reinforcement learning agents. Uh, who knows, maybe we'll have some other people trying to code us, you know, <laughs> try to understand why we're not working the way we should be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I had this debate with friends the other day, um, which was a bit mind-bugging. They told me they saw this video on YouTube from a guy called Kurzgesagt. Um, oh, yes. I, I have not seen the, the, the video yet. They've recommended it to me. I really have to watch it. But apparently it's about asking yourself the question of if there had been a civilization which was just the way we were in the 1800s, mm -hmm. So, you know, the state that in which our civilization, civilization, civilization was in the 1800s, but like three million years ago, which traces would we have of this population? Imagine there was a humanity that lived for 1800, for like what we, until what we were in the 1800s, mm -hmm. but this happened four million years ago, which traces would we have left? I think the conclusion of that video is, well, very little, very few things. Yeah. So actually nothing tells us that maybe there was a middle age, but like 10 million years before the middle age. And there was a, a civilization on our planet just before us. We just wouldn't have any way to know. Surely like, you'd be able to see like, lots of different time periods of like, Roman baths and like, all those other things before they came. Right. Yeah, yeah, well, th this is the argument they're making of, well, this would not work uh, that much anymore for more recent stages of our civilization, because, for example, you would find together things that would not naturally be. For example, you would go into the UK, where London currently is now, and you would find a lot of gold at the same place. This would not be natural. Like somebody had to bring it this yeah. way. And yeah, of course, this was the Bank of England five million years ago. Um, th so nowadays we've done some modifications to the planet that will still be there and will look suspicious if maybe, I don't know, in 10 billion years we've all disappeared and still th th we still have some traces left. Same thing with nuclear waste that we're starting to put in place. Mm -hmm. We all know that those wastes will unfortunately be uh, impacting or radiating for a long time. And those are things that are not natural. So we're we're giving hints now so that even if we disappear, 
and people reappear in like a hundred million years. They can have hints that we were there. I mean, what do, I mean, I guess if you have like lots of volcanoes going, earthquakes going up, and to everything just getting destroyed and moved around, oh, right? Yeah, like yeah. imagine like just where the Bank of England is, like tectonic plates split up and the gold gets dis- displaced and moved everywhere. Maybe then... Yeah, yeah maybe. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, our, our planet is way more robust than we are. Yeah. It reminds me of, um, of a video, I think that this one was, was made in French, but it was about um, talking about climate change and how humans are impacting the planet, mm. um, but as if the Earth was talking. And it was like, from the Earth's perspective, it was like, well, I've seen the this thing called human just take more and more space on me. But in the end, they can do whatever they want. I will regenerate from whatever they do. It's just about them. I will still be there no matter what you guys do. 10, 20 more degrees. Don't care, I'm a big rock in the middle of space. Like, who can touch me? But you guys, maybe you won't do it. I'll still be there. Maybe you won't. Hmm. Yeah, this was a very... That's kind of a scary way to look it, at it. It's, it's it's a bit scary, but it's also thought provoking. Mm. It it w- it was built and made to be an an awakening thing, right? Um, and I like those things that are thought provoking. Another thought experiment I had uh, this was more when I had in high school that puzzled my brain at this time is when you zoom into atoms um, and you see things about like the kernel of an atom and the the electrons flying around mm-hmm. where it's just spheres void and spheres mm. and you think about it space around us is kind of spheres void and spheres and what would happen given that we know that a table like this one where the microphone is we know well, like, we have people thinking that this is mainly void and matter is, a signi- is an insignificant part of it but we're so far away from it that we consider this to be one block what if you had the same perspective, but like of the universe around us? Maybe we're just a bit of a table of whatever is a hundred, whatever times bigger than us, you know? Well, what do you do when you think of that? Do you, what, what, what's the next thought that comes after when you think of something like that? I think it's just contemplation. Mm. Um, I'm somebody who likes to be contemplative to things from time to time. Mm. Uh, I was fortunate enough to, uh, a few years ago, to the big parks in the US mm. and sometimes you just realize you go into those deserts um, Monument Valley for example is a, is a great example of this you can be stood on that rock that is surrounded by huge valleys of sand so big that you can see the um, shadow of the clouds moving on them <laughs> and I'm really the type of person who can just sit there watch the shadows moving around and be like this is just so much bigger than me yeah, you know, I'm just just this little bit, and there are these huge masses moving around, and yeah. I have the chance to observe the show that those things are are giving as a gift to me. Mm. So yeah, I can very easily be contemplative of things, and you know, almost in a meditative state. And this is kind of what I get when I think about those things. Like those are questions which, let's be honest, we may never answer. Right? Mm. It's just funny thought experiments, but it's just they, they make you realize that you're not that much in the end <laughs> yeah sometimes I guess like a lot of what people uh, end up coming the conclusion people come to is that we're very insignificant right yeah. and the two ways that I've seen people then progress 
One would be to say that we're very insignificant and be very... Drowned under it? It's Overwhelmed by it? De- like in the depressed ni- Nihilistic, side. let's say. Yeah. Uh, some, some would end up being very nihilistic, saying what's the point of our ex- whole existence, right? Mm-hmm. But I think it's the wrong time frame, right? Because uh, you, can, you can pick any time frame and you can pick hundreds of billions of years, right? Which is e- much older than the, e- than the lifetime of the universe and you can go with that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I think what you, um, the way you have approached it is with a sense of appreciation for even being able to contemplate these ideas. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right? And also what you said with this sense of, of perspective. I mean, given how you take them, um, you can have a different perspective on this. I realize I'm not very clear phrasing this, but the point I'm trying to get to is um, when you think about um, taking actions and doing some things that sometime, sometimes look very uh, scary to you. Like, I don't know, you're, you're sat at this bar, there's this girl you fancy at the other end of the, at the other end of the bar, <laughs> and you're like, God damn it, I'm so scared to go and talk to her. Well, if you think about it, and one of the thoughts I like to have, I've recently had realized this, but it's come back to my mind again and again, is will this matter in five years? <laughs> right? And well, most of the time, you'll notice that the things that you find very daunting at first, if you ask yourself this question, wait, not really, you know? Maybe this person that you fancy, you'll go and see and talk to them, Maybe you there won't be a connection. That's fine. Mm. Five years, you won't even remember you were sat in that pub that, that night. Yeah. If it goes well, well, maybe in five years you'll be a happy couple. Yeah. And, and, and that's it. And it's the same thing for so many things in life. Um, like even starting little little projects that you want to work on the side. Um, in five years, maybe you won't even remember when you started this, or even whether you started this if it didn't happen getting big. But just giving yourself this opportunity that this becomes something is, you know, like it doesn't matter that much at mm-hmm. this point in time. It's just opening a door. Yeah. I think it's wonderful the way you framed it, you know. It's going with, with low expectations, but an understanding that it could be uh, whatever, whatever you do, it could be something, right? It's just trying things out and exploring. Like my friends and I always like to. S- when we encounter something that we feel a little bit of resistance to or something just happened and we're probably not so happy about it we say hey you know it's an adventure yeah. you know let's, let's see what happens after yeah, that yeah true right? but it's something that took me a really long time to realize I think I'm having those thoughts fly around my head since maybe COVID in those days where you know when COVID was happening um, I did whatever I could to help at my scale but you also have had to find a way to protect your mental health from what was happening at a bigger mm. level. Yeah. It doesn't mean ignoring everything, right? It doesn't mm. mean uh, rejecting all the terrible things that were happening during COVID and yeah. that are still happening now. It just means realizing that this is out of your reach and you shouldn't take individually the whole guilt for everything that is happening. Yeah. And... Um, this is well, therefore also the case with my thoughts of will this matter in five years? Um, you should not 
overthink now of everything that could, should, would, will, maybe happen. It's just trying. You, you'll you'll see where it goes. And also during COVID, I realized that uh, like there were so many things I missed after being locked home for six months because I went I went back home to uh, to my house to be in a house at the countryside rather than in a flat in the middle of London. Which I, yeah. <laughs> yeah. But anyways, after six months locked in my room over there, I just realized that there are so many things um, I wish I had done more mm. before that time because now I realized I was missing them. Um, there's this, I mean, a bit cliche song, but it's called Let Her Go, uh, which is basically about the fact that you realize that you've had something only once it leaves you. Right? You only get homesick once you leave home because you realize that home was a great place for you and you really liked it um, you, you so yeah this perspective at this point I maybe realized that there were lots of things in life that I wish I had done more before lockdown happened and now I have more this perspective of yeah let's do things in the end you know if may, maybe I'm tired one evening my my friends want to go out and do these things I've never tried maybe before I was like oh maybe I'm, I'm tired I want to sleep now I'm more like, yeah, that, that's an experience that sounds good. You know, in three days I'll have absorbed the lack of sleep I'll have tonight. I'll just have forgotten about it. The only difference between the two experiences is maybe I'll have discovered an activity I like. Maybe I'll have met very inspiring people. That's the thing with hap with, which happened with that house party I went to, right? And where I met you. <laughs> I was like, um, near here got in touch. She was like, oh yeah, I have a house party that evening. I already had something planned just before that house party. It would have been very easy to be like, oh, well, I already have something before. It's just yeah. not getting, get in. The perspective was more, well, this is an opportunity to go meet people, talk to people I don't know, and spend good a good time with my friends, yeah. uh, which I went to. Now we're recording <laughs> that podcast. Yeah. So yeah, yeah. It, things can go a long way, and just being open to opportunities is fantastic. Mm, that's fantastic. Yeah. Um, so, I suppose on the on the subject of changing perspectives. Um, how is doing a PhD change your perspective on things? Um, so I'll start with the obvious things. The obvious answers that uh, I think people who are outside of this world will think of. Um, it has changed my view of science. And I'm now more rigorous in the, the elements that I put forward when it's a domain that that I'm working on. For example, if people, somebody asks me a question about AI, I try to be more rigorous in my answer. Not rigorous in the sense, be very high level for something that they will not understand, uh, but rigorous in the, sand, in the sense, say something that I know is true, and also be able to acknowledge when I don't know things and when there are limitations to things. It has teach me on the domain I'm working on to go beyond the sensational that you can see everywhere. It has also taught me, I guess, by translation, to in other domains, when you see something very sensational, just, you know, go scratch a little bit underneath the surface to see what is actually happening. I don't deny that sensationalism is something that is fantastic to, for example, get funding for a field, yeah. right? But um, if you want to reach the truth, you have to just dig a little bit deeper than the first layer of sensationalism that comes to your eyes because, you know, this is what naturally pops out in social media. 
or in, through news article because this is what sells clicks, this is what whatever. But when you're interested in two pictures, scratch a little bit more and see what happens. It's happened recently on a field that is not mine actually, uh, but the um, Oxford University made the headlines of BBC News uh, by making progress on nuclear fusion reactors. Yes. Which yeah. and it was amazing. It was on the headlines. It yeah, was everywhere. About the um, column, the Tokamak. Is it Tokamak? Yeah, I think I know which one you're talking about. It's around the Oxford area, right? Yeah. Well, I mean, I guess for once again the labels and things. <laughs> the BBC title was like Oxford University's makes breakthrough in nuclear fusion or whatever. You know. <laughs> um, and then I don't deny that amazing work has been done there. Yeah. We don't have a fusion reactor yet, yet they've done great progress. And it's amazing that they get to have this publicity through this sensationalism, but also uh, scratching behind the surface and realizing what was actually being done, which is amazing, but it's still far from, you know, everybody's got a little sun in their city that powers the whole thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So I thought we could talk a little bit about recent AI news, um, since, we're, since we're on the yeah, topic yeah. of... Oh, um, <laughs> just before that, I realized, so... The, things that shifted my perspective on the PhD, science, the science bit is the, the obvious things. Um, the other one, I would say, is the the fact that you learn a lot about yourself when you do a PhD. Oh, yeah. Um, I think this was even a stronger feeling because um, those p people who do PhD at the same time as me have done it partly during COVID and lockdowns. Mm. Um, but you learn a lot about listening to yourself, productivity and those type of things. Uh, also a bit about project management because in the end a PhD project is about you hitting the limits of yourself. Hmm. When, you, when you go through a degree, um, you are, if you were to compare this to athleticism for example, it's as if you were learning to jump on above things and they were setting the bars for you and you have to jump above those bars right that's that's taking a module at the end of the at the end of the term they set a bar for you if you jump above the bar that's fine you've got you, you'll pass your year if you jump below the bar you'll fail but the the key thing is that the bar is set by others mm -hmm. whereas for your phd you're the one setting the bar and you'll set because you're interested in your topic you'll set the bar as high as you can until you'll hit the bar. And you'll hit the bar hard because you're not used to hitting bars usually when you do PhDs. Like you may have struggled in the past, but usually your, your, your modules well, went well. Whereas given that the only limit to your speed in your PhD is yourself, well, you're gonna hit, hit the speed limit at some point. Um, and at this time, well, you just learn to cope with yourself. For example, I've realized during lockdown how fortunate I was to be in a house in the middle of nowhere, where if at some point my my mind was cluttered and I just couldn't find solutions anymore, could just go for a 20 minute run, uh, take a shower for five minutes, took me 25 minutes, yet I would be way more productive after this. Whereas if I had kept working for the rest of the afternoon with my cluttered mind, I would have done nothing. So by taking those 25 minutes out to do something else, just resetting myself, it's just I just gain time by doing something else than working, you know. Yeah. Um, same thing with self-organization. Like I've I've learned a lot about doing lists of things to do and like you know to-do lists are this kind of things I used to find silly before going on to a PhD. Yeah. 
but now that I'm the only one setting goals for myself, um, those things are actually helpful. Also, um, to realize what you've done in the past, I don't know, week or two, because sometimes things can take a long time, and by the time you report to your supervisor, um, you know, you have to tell what you've gone through, and it's very easy to think like you've not done much because you've, you always get directly attracted by the next thing to do. And you never really take a step back to realize, oh, I've done this, 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 and this. So those are all things I, I, I learned to cope with, kind of, yeah. This, mm. this balance thing, like this idea of doing something, taking time off of work to do something completely different, um, is already something I did earlier on my education. Like I've been um, maintaining quite a decent level of sports during all my studies in France, including the preparatory classes where people usually stop everything. I needed to have my like two, three hours of judo a week because this was the time where I would just go on the mats, not think about what I was doing. And this would serve as a mental reset for me, a way to just purge my mind mm -hmm. and yeah. think about something else. Just the clutter would go away and I would come back and be more effective. But also um, echoing back to those notions of you only realize that something was useful when you don't do it anymore. But something I didn't do at the beginning of lockdown and for the beginning of my PhD. And when I started doing it again, I realized, well, this is actually very useful. Mm -hmm. You know, this is, yeah. this helps me a lot. So you, yeah, you learn a lot by working by yourself, by having to manage yourself in a lot of different things. And so more than the science, you, I think, grow up a lot as an individual. I see. So, were you also playing the piano at the time? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, the two ways of getting clutter out of my mind was either going on the mats and fighting for an hour, or I always had the keyboard just next to my desk, so if I wanted to take five minutes off, take my my brain, put it out of my head, just play something and just be yeah. like... Sometimes I find... Um, sometimes it's like almost a... It's, you kind of need the chemicals, right? The dopamine. So um, when you go for... like Exercise is so important because... Uh, well, you get a reset, right? And yeah. you change your brain chemistry. And... When you do a PhD, you get stuck a lot when you're doing research because, <laughs> I mean, that's that's the whole point of it, right? Like to get yes. stuck and then yes, you do because if if you're not stuck, then, um, that's that's something e easily solved. You need to be stuck and yeah. then, and then come up with something creative, figure out the problem, mm -hmm. right? Talk to people. Um, what what do you do when you get stuck? I would say I try to find something else to work on. I mean, when it's an actual being stuck on something that we don't have a solution for, right? Because everybody who's been coding, it's like, what do you do when you get stuck? You go on Stack Overflow, because that's what everybody <laughs> yeah. does. And it usually unstucks you very fast. Like they, they are, this website is good for getting you unstuck. Um, if you get a problem with a, a like, something which you're stuck on, which is a little bit stronger, like research-wise, you may want to look for research papers of have people worked on this problem before. And this is going to take you a bit more time 
than Stack Overflow because I guess search engine optimization for research papers is not as good as it is for coding questions because people ask research, research questions less than they do ask programming questions and also answering research questions is obviously more complicated than three lines of code. Um, so that's the second level of getting stuck. When the getting stuck is bigger than this, I think the, the best solution is just to be stuck at first as in realize that you're stuck and use a lot of brain power to try and figure out a solution. Mm -hmm. But then once you've reached a point where you're not finding any solutions anymore, you feel like you've been running around in circles for a lot of time, then just take a step back, go do something else and let your brain do some job in the background. Yeah, I've always been amazed by how much our brain is able to solve things by itself as long as you've put it on the tracks. The first times I've realized this was in preparatory classes, so those two years where we, do, where we do lots of theoretical sciences. Some of my maths exams, I was sometimes puzzled by the last problem that I couldn't solve. No way I would find a solution to this. Mm -hmm. I would have ideas, I would dig in many different ways, but I wouldn't solve it. I would walk out of the classroom of the exam center, literally not gonna lie, the first step after passing the door, I was like, that was it. That was the thing. And it was always the same way. Always the same thing. And there's this uh, famous story about uh, Poincaré, the French mathematician, who was working on the proof for a long time, couldn't find a way to solve it. His wife finally convinced him to go on holiday. He set foot on the bus to go there. And at the time, he just at the second he went into the bus, he was like, that's it, that's my solution. Just because your brain in the background has been working freely without you trying to over push it in some direction and swiftly found something. Mm. And that's that's just, I think, brilliant. Or, you know, just the way ideas comes up from time to time. You've just been thinking of a problem, you know, not something you found a bit major, but you just, you realize that this is a problem and yeah, it would be nice if it's solved someday. And then you think of a solution like a mobile app or whatever, it could help solving this. Just out of nowhere, you're like, hey, this sounds good. This little voice at the back of your head that tells you, that gives you hints of things to think about. And sometimes those hints are actually very, very good. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> this kind of comes up quite often when my friends and I are talking about how we solve questions on tutorials or exams. Like uh, one time I was, I was working out commutator relations for angular momentum. Mm -hmm. Right, and I, I couldn't for the life of me figure it out. And then I went to sleep, and in my dream, I saw it. It was like, <laughs> well, it, <laughs> it was like it spoke to me, you know. And then I woke up, I was like, oh my god, <laughs> it happened. Right. It's uh, never been that hardcore to me, but yeah, I've, I've heard of people and, and other stories of things being this way. For example, um, the first people who worked on analog computers. So, you know, those computers that do not rely on zeros and ones and bits, but rather replicate a, a, f um, a physical phenomenon by something which is analogous, therefore analog computer. Um, so some of the, f the first people who worked on those things, um, at this time, the, I think it was the British military who was looking for a way to accurately aim at planes in the sky or whatever. Mm -hmm. And the guy realized in his dream that he was on the battlefield and there were people manipulating what looked like an analog computers on what looked like something was shooting planes <laughs> and he just realized that the thing he's been working on which was for something completely different I think was for like um, 
no predicting the heights of tides at that time. So completely unrelated. The guy just in his dreams saw that there was this possible application and then ended up deploying this in the military. <laughs> so yeah, there, I've heard stories of things happening this way where just people are seeing things in, the, in their dreams. As crazy as it may sound for people listening to us, <laughs> uh, those things happen. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really quite magical when it happens. Yeah, <laughs> it's, like, oh it's my weird God. though. Yeah. So you, you were talking about looking past sensationalism and digging a little bit deeper, right? Yeah. So I was hoping we could just have a off-the-cuff chat about some recent AI news. Like, for example, the Oxford Union had a talk on the ethics about AI and the ethics of its own existence, whether it could possibly even have any ethics. I mean, yeah. as in, do, do you know what I mean by that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah I do. So what um, do you think about that? Well, I think it's very interesting, uh, going back to the question of sensationalism, this is a very great news headline. <laughs> Oxford Uni debates ethics with an AI. That's, yeah, that's cool, that's gonna make clicks. That, that, that's yeah. amazing. Um, and in itself, I think it's an interesting experiment, right? I think it's mm. fantastic that those days we're able to build computers that are able to maintain conversations with us and have um, reasonably well-constructed answers to questions that we may have for them. Mm-hmm. Um, however, I think it's also interesting with those things, and this relates back to what I said about actually understanding algorithms. It's interesting to look at what those, how those algorithms actually work, and um, uh, how, how do you put it this way? It's not because an AI can give you a well-formatted answer about ethics that has actually a brain such as the one of a philosopher that is able to have a very well thought reasoning around ethics. Um, what happens generally with those text generations AIs is more that they are trained on a huge corpus of text, on a huge set of text. Um, I don't remember the name of the one they used for the Oxford Uni case, but a well-known AI that has... Um, Megatron, th- right? that, that I, th- yeah, I think it was Megatron for the, the, ca- the case of the Oxford Uni. Um, but an, another AI very similar to this, also using the technology of Transformers that people have talked a lot about recently is GPT-3, General yeah. Purpose Transformer 3 from OpenAI. And they all work the same way. Those are AIs that are trained to uh, replicate language, but from the knowledge base of the whole internet. <laughs> so they have a lot of text to work with. P- humans have written a lot of books, have written a lot of things on Wikipedia, on forums, on Reddit, on whatever, debating those things. And what, the, what those AIs have learned is, roughly speaking, if I take you a random web page or piece of text and remove a bit of that piece of text, they've learned to fill in the hole. So if the AI was working or was seeing a, a philosophical text and were hiding something in the middle, they learned, well, the argument that usually goes there is that one, and therefore could fill in the holes. Um, they didn't learn the whole reasoning behind why those words are actually there. It's just in the training data, those words are there, therefore they must be there all the time. And this is why when an AI is being asked um, philosophical questions like this one, of course it will be able to produce nicely formatted answers, because those are things that are debated a lot online. Mm-hmm. And when, when you give an AI things to learn from the debates that are written online, learn, learn to fill in this debate, 
I remove this argument, I leave only the question to you, and I assess you on how well you're able to produce the answer. Well, if you train an AI to do this, yes, it will be able to produce good answers. But I think a very interesting um, observation with GPT-3 was that, um, you know, there was this thing where, was it the New York Times who had an article written by, or The Guardian? I don't remember exactly which newspaper, but anyway, a newspaper had one of its news articles completely written up by GPT-3, supposedly. Which was great, you know, it looked nice. But then some researchers um, tried to go beyond this, tried to assess whether the algorithm had actually acquired human knowledge or not, or human reasoning power or not, and gave GPT-3 simple maths equations to solve, in which you need to have the logics behind the symbols to um, be able to solve those. Right? Yeah. You won't have the example <coughs> of all existing mathematical equations online, Yet, from, a v from very few examples, you should be able to understand why the dynamics between the different symbols and how do they work. And GPT-3 was very poor at doing, for example, simple additions. There, don't get me wrong, there are AIs that are very good at solving those types of, to those types of problems. Mm -hmm. uh, you can think, for example, um, about what DeepMind recently did with AlphaCode, where they're able to write a computer program that solves a mathematical question just from the text of it. That's brilliant, right? Um, but those AIs are just to trained to solve a specific task. For now, none of them have convinced me as to whether they are able to have proper understanding of high-level concepts and derive argument from this understanding rather than deriving answers mm -hmm. from, yeah, I've seen something in the web before, I've seen many examples in the web of people talking about philosophy, I've learned how to fill in a blank yeah. So I can answer your question. I see. So it's almost like if the if the GPT three or Megatron has access to the Wikipedia page for minus and if or minus and like plus, right? Yeah. And then if you were to ask it a subtraction or uh, ask to do some subtraction or some addition and it fails at that, th that would almost show that it did not derive the meaning from the web, the Wikipedia page of minus and plus. Yeah, yeah, right? that, that's exactly it. Yeah. That, oh. That's it. No, so I think it's it's amazing what we can do with with AI these days, um, but I think we're not there mm. at the, you know, very, very unrealistic pictures of AIs will dominate us and will be way smarter than we are. We'll all yeah. be shut down into boxes like the Matrix, with with robots taking over. I I don't think this is happening anytime soon. I remember one of the one of my friends at school he gave a talk on like the singularity right the the artificial intelligence singularity mm -hmm. and that although we although it seems like it's so far away like people theorize that if if it were to happen that all this robots rising up would have happened it all happened at at one singular point where it just suddenly sky like exponentially increases so much right if you know what I mean yeah, shoots up. Yeah, well, I think it's just about um, the same thing as the way um, we we transfer information has impacted our societies. When you think about it, progress has done has gone faster and faster with the rate at which we transmit information. Hmm. Um, what allows us to be very fast in science now and to do amazing progress at blazing speeds is because we're able to take 
the most brilliant minds all around the world and put them together and have them communicate on things so that they, they are very efficient together. We're not anymore at that time where, um, you know, the Greek scientists, philosophers, as brilliant as they were, were communicating with each other by writing letters and posting letters. Right? Nowadays, if you want to have a colleague's opinion on something, you just pull out WhatsApp, Slack, Teams, whatever, send them a message, you got your answer 30 seconds. <laughs> and this is, so the way information is, get, is being transferred faster and faster, make progress go faster and faster. And I think just is, this is just one more illustration of this. Yeah, that's wonderful. What a time to um, be alive, right? <laughs> so the other thing I wanted to uh, talk to you about was that the DeepMind co-founder, Mustafa Suleiman, that hopefully that's the right pronunciation. He's launched a new AI venture, right? And it's about conversational AI. So what do you think of these new ventures that have started that are, have quite broad overviews of what they're doing? Mm-hmm. Um, what, what do you think of those? Well, in the case of this venture, I'm not too worried for them. Um, they have, they have two, three brilliant minds leading this thing and they'll have more than enough money to, to push things forward as in if I'm not mistaken um, the three like main founders of this one was uh, co-founder of DeepMind the other one was co-founder of LinkedIn and the third one was uh, lead scientist of DeepMind and now he's becoming lead scientist in that company so I think they have all the, the things that you need put together to have a great success um, and they'll be working on conversational AI which I think is an interesting field and is one of the ones that has struck me the most in its progress in the recent years. I'm not sure if you've heard of this, but there's this thing called Google Duplex, where um, the Google Assistant can basically book you an appointment in a restaurant in English by giving a phone call to the restaurant. Oh, yeah, basically, I saw that in yeah, uh, yeah. one of the demos, right? Yeah, so the, the base... The problem- Pixel phone, yeah. The base problematic of Google was a lot of things nowadays you can book online but not everything and certainly the let's say smaller size restaurants they definitely don't have an online booking system usually the way this works is you just you know give a phone call to the restaurant like hey I'd like something a table tonight 8pm but their thing was you know as always you need you need to have your time for yourself and you don't have the time to waste on those things (laughs) so why not build an AI that's gonna call the restaurant by itself and book the appointment for you and they did this and I have to admit that Google Duplex working in English language uh, for now because those are only the the only examples I've seen of it is very impressive it really looks human like they even at the ums in the <laughs> in the conversation she's like um yeah I'd like to book something for a client and I'm like oh. that's, that's frighteningly realistic also the tones of the voice right yeah um, I use um let me get this a good way around text-to-speech technology quite a bit and I have to admit that the voices that were showcased in these applications were even like, they were they were another level compared to what you could have on a standard computer or whatever to do text-to-speech you know mm-hmm. um, so I think this field is brilliant um, I wish those guys a lot of success on conversational AI I think there's quite a bit to be done. Um, they've been working a little bit with a startup that does um, voice AI applications. Mm. Um, and 
you know, I'm realizing that this field is getting bigger and bigger and bigger. Uh, Microsoft has recently bought a company called Nuance that does AI technologies for quite a bit of money. So, you know, it's all the signs that this domain is about to go on a, on a boom. And yeah, great for them that they're about, they're, they're able to position themselves on this, what looks like a great opportunity. And yeah, I'm looking forward to see what type of amazing technology those guys will come up with. Yeah, that's wonderful. Um, the features that Google always shows with their Pixel phones always makes me <laughs> want to get one of them, you know. Um, and integrating it with the Tensor chips, I don't know if how, I don't know how much you know about like the hardware as well. I don't know a lot about hardware. I mean, from whatever I've understood, is they've taken a GPU, adapted it to work with their own algorithms, so it's even more performant than a GPU if you use Google technology. Mm. They've made it very, very, very small, and this is what they've put in their, in their phones, which is great. <laughs> I mean, we're reaching a point where you can do amazing things with, a, with your smartphone. Yeah. And I like the fact that um, nowadays, a lot of AI technologies, they don't take a lot of time to go from research paper to being used by the wider audience. Hmm. For example, a thing you'll see being advertised everywhere with the last Google phone is what they call the magic eraser. Oh yeah. This thing, yeah. they're like, I can't, this ad keeps coming up all the time on, in my YouTube feed. Um, but essentially, for those who are listening to us, it's just all about, you take a picture, you have this random dude who photobombed your great picture of the monument. <laughs> You'd like to remove them from the picture, you just press this button, swipe on the guy, it removes it and puts a smooth background as is, as if nobody was ever there. This is technology that is not that old. I think it was the first paper showcasing this for like four or five years ago, maybe a bit more. Um, and now it's become a product, and that's great. I, I, I like how fast these, these transi transitions now go. And I'm actually looking forward to what companies like, for example, Apple will put forward in the coming few years, especially yeah. with all the deba those debates about augmented reality, the, the metaverse and all those things. I feel like Apple is more of a firm that when they put something out, they have um, thought about it and then tested it to the point where it's something that is quite reliable. Mm. For example, they very recently re um, released this feature where you can get the text from an image. You know, reading text from a picture is something that we've known how to do for quite a bit of, of time in the computer science community and the AI community. But just um, Apple has now implemented this on their phone and the way this works and captures any text, even a weird logo that is shaped like around and things, this, the, the text does a, an S shape at the vertical and then diagonal and things, it still catches it. And so the fact that um, those product, products are always very mature in the technologies that they have made me really look forward to seeing what this firm will do in the future because mm. I think those products will be really you know, very impactful and work very well. Yeah, I, um, the, uh, Apple's just been doing amazing stuff recently. Like, I don't know like the, if you know the, the M1 Max just came out. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? It's just insane. Like, I've heard a lot of good things. I actually have the last generation of MacBooks just before those M1s. Oh. Uh, and, I mean, those still are 
formidable computers, right? Don't, yeah. don't get me wrong. Yeah. Uh, but I know that next time I'll change, especially um, given that I do my fair share of like app development on my computer. And oh, when okay. you when you get an app that becomes a little bit big, uh, compiling it can take a bit of time. I've seen how like it just goes way faster without burning out your computer on the on those yeah. new on this new hardware and yeah it, it looks amazing what kind of app development do you do what, what have you been working on um so i've been working on apps for personal use um that i intending to releasing once i'll have uh, bullet tested them myself oh, uh, there i mean there are two specific apps i've been working on more recently one which should come out in the coming month or two uh, about a magic trick thing is mm-hmm. Um, my my parents introduced me to magic uh, at Christmas a year ago. Uh, found it interesting, like cardistry, you know, doing mm-hmm. card tricks. Found it interesting, and I was like, oh, can I, you know, find a way to do this in, in a more creative way? Find a way to maybe use your phone as a gimmick t- in a magic trick. And now I've implemented this <laughs> app, and it's yeah, about to come out. The only the only things I still need to get is um, a bit of marketing for the app, like us nice images for the app store a nice video and then I'll upload everything and, and ship this to Apple um, <laughs> so that, that that's one of them which is more of a fun project the other one is you know I've told you about um, things I've learned about myself doing a PhD uh, productivity and especially the importance of logging things and being able to at the end of two weeks take a step back and realize what you've done well I have I'm currently testing on my phone an app that I've done where I just register three things that I've done every day. Mm. So it's it's also like I've been reading some um, productivity books, you could say. Uh, There's one which has been recommended by m- one of my great friends called The Five Second Rule. Oh, okay. uh, yeah, just just telling you about how you know you can uh, trick yourself. Right? Trick yourself. Like what's what's hard in do- into doing something is getting started. Mm-hmm. Once you're started, yeah. that's the you know the hardest bit is being done. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's this trick where you can say, say to yourself, you can count down in your head five, four, three, two, one, and then do the thing. It just makes it easier. But anyway, completely unrelated to this, in this book at some point they mentioned the fact that realistically there are only three major things you can do for yourself in a day. Three, three things that will really push the needle forward for you in a day. So. What I try to do is, in the morning, realize what will those three things that I will do today, two or three things that I will do that will push the needle forward, and at the end of the day, log whether I've done them or not. And this allows me to, I don't know, after the course of two weeks or maybe a month, just look back. And even though all those things looked insignificant when I did them, like when I say push the needle forward, you know, you you progress on things step by step. Um, you, you don't do the major leap at once. Mm-hmm. But by taking a step back and looking at the previous four small things, that uh, 40 small things that you've been doing, well, those 40 added together, they start to be big. And you realize that, yeah, the projects you've been working on have actually gone forward. Yeah, so it's like creating focuses for yourself. Yeah, well, it's... I think this um, app serves two purposes. Creating focuses for yourself, so mm-hmm. acknowledging what you will dedicate your time to and be in harmony with yourself as in, uh, you know, you almost duplicate yourself as 
one takes the long-term decisions and is happy with the decision it takes long-term, and the other one just executes the small things day after day to reach that mm. long-term goal. Yeah. So the fact of setting those things for yourself allow you to take a step back and be like, okay, what's my long-term goal? Will I be happy when I'll be there? If this is what I really want, those are all the little things I want to do, and there's just the second bit of myself that will take over and do those little things. And once I've done all of them, I'll be where I want it to, I'll look back and I'll be happy. <laughs> so that's one of the purposes. The other one is to realize that you're going forward. As I've said, drink, doing a PhD um, is not as what you could have in a corporate job where some projects go very fast or mm. are very short term. A one more month project is not a thing in a PhD. Yeah. So sometimes it can just seem to you like you've, you've done nothing, which is not true. But a lot of people, a lot of PhD students who I've been talking to around me have had that same feeling of you've worked for two weeks, you know you've done stuff, yet it doesn't look like much. But the fact of writing every day what you've been doing, coming back to it, and if ever you feel doubtful a little bit, you know, you go you go back through your notes and you're like, okay, I've done this, 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 this. You realize that actually you've not done nothing and I think this is very beneficial for mental health. Mm. So it's setting smaller goals so that you can have a perspective, right? You yeah. Better understanding of what you're actually achieving. Yeah, I, I, I guess it helps to, once again, uh, reframe the the way you're approaching things, right? So yeah, you have previously mentioned that you also want to make an impact in other areas other than just science, like in in science communication as well, right? Yeah. And uh, so maybe you could talk a little bit about that. Well, I think in the end, AI data, all these things or at least my, my, my vision of it, is it's all about bringing value back to our world. Yeah. I mean, it's it's very fun to import the MNIST data set and do a little classifier on, on MNIST and have <laughs> the accuracy go to 98% or 99.8% on your computer and you're like, woo, I've done it, that's cool. <laughs> but in the end, that's not bringing any value. You, you may have learned in the process and that's amazing. Mm-hmm. But I think true value comes when you're able to go from a problem to a solution to that problem and something that actually helps. Mm -hmm. Um, So I think my PhD is an example of this, as in we're developing state-of-the-art science and AI to solve very concrete problems linked to using AI-based clinical decision support systems in the hospitals. One of the things I'm working on, for example, is quantifying uncertainty around the recommendations we're doing. This is not something that was done a lot in reinforcement learning. Um, this is this is a challenging problem on the state of the art because we don't have answers to those questions. Yet the fact of getting answers to those questions is driven by the fact that the day we put our system in the hand of, in the hands of doctors, we want the system to be able to acknowledge when it has had enough data and when not. We don't mm-hmm. want this the system to be completely blind of the fact that its recommendations make sense or not. Yeah. Another example of bringing value to the world through data would be um, my cousins. They're studying medicine in France. And at the end of this year, actually, in a few months now, they will be taking a competitive exam in which 
at the end of which, depending on their results, they will be able to go into a specialty or another, become a GP, become an ophthalmologist, become a cardiologist, neurologist, whatever. And they all have specialties that they want to go into, and they were really freaking out as to whether they could get into this thing that it was hard. Not gonna lie, this is hard, this is hard, but I also see that they are working very hard, right? So I just went onto the, the, the websites online where they have the data of the previous years, crunched a few numbers, made some visualizations and showed them, well, you see, given the, like the results you've had for now, you're ranking like here-ish, and the specialty you're aiming for gets people from this rank to this rank. And from what I can see, given, that the, effort you're given the efforts you're providing for now, it's okay. Like, you, you, it's good that you have this pressure to boost yourself and to maintain yourself at this level. But if you maintain this level, you should be all right. You know, and if I could, if I was able to relieve a little bit of their pressure off their shoulder by simply doing this, then that's great. Another example, um, my brother plays tennis. Um, I can't play tennis, but I love being on the side of the field when he plays just to, you know, encourage him and try to um, be part a little bit of this world that he loves so much. Um, I can't play tennis, however, I can code apps, I can do data science, and maybe I can help him this way. So one of the app projects I've been working on is a way to um, gather data about what he does on the field while playing, and then from the data I gather, um, analyze his matches and maybe tell him, well, you know, when you're in this position when you're hitting, you're missing a lot, so maybe you should train this move a bit more than the others to become better. Um, unfortunately, I was due to record his, the first matches of data um, before I came back to the UK, but I got COVID, then he broke his ankle, so it did not happen before <laughs> I left. I'll get my first recordings, yeah. hopefully this summer. But my hope is to be able to provide him value from data I'll be able to extract from his play. And you know, I think this is really what I want to do later on, mm -hmm. is use the skills that I have acquired in maths, software engineering, AI, data science, however you want to call this, to bring value back to people. Yeah. Mm. It's kind of like Moneyball before tennis, right? <laughs> you see the movie? <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah. You mentioned previously that you wanted to make data science and machine learning more accessible to doctors, right? Yeah. And I think you talked about like some sort of open day, something like that. And uh, it's, uh, is it to get feedback on how doctors are responding to the systems that you're creating and trying to improve the, the interface, right? for the transfer of knowledge between doctors to the machine learning systems and back and forth. Yeah, so first, before jumping on to doctors specifically, uh, I think the open day I mentioned was the day where we were presenting what we called here the ESA of our PhD, the Early sa Stage Assessment. Some a, a report you hand in after like nine months of degree, you do presentations about it, presentation about it, just to show what you've done in your first year. And in our doctoral center, um, this is meant to be the open day of the center, so anybody can attend. And this presentation, I made it uh, purposefully easily accessible, so I could get as much feedback as I could from anybody who would attend it. This was not specifically directed at doctors; it was directed as it was directed to whoever wanted to join, right? Mm. Um, and I think 
no matter who you talk to, they will always have value. Everybody can have valuable feedback about what you're doing. For example, I sometimes talk to my grandparents about my research. I cannot go deep into the maths with them. There's, there's no point. If anything, it would, well, I would have said make them run away because it's my grandparents. Maybe they would have thought, oh, he's smart. Blah, blah, blah. But this is not really what <coughs> I have wanted from this conversation. Yeah, It's more that they actually get a grasp of what I'm doing and are able to provide me feedback. Mm-hmm. So just the mere thing of telling them, well, I'm building computer programs that will hopefully help doctors treat patients. Well, they already come up with philosophical questions or points that I wouldn't have thought about because I don't have the experience that they have. Mm-hmm. And also they would have had... I would, they will have a lot of step backs from the project I'm doing. I'm in the action every day. They are further away from it, so they have very valuable feedback. Yeah. Therefore, I think that being able to explain what you're doing on a higher level, on a more accessible level, is really is really a great thing to learn how to do because you're going to mm. get a lot of feedback from people you would not have expected. And then, coming back to the point of doctors, um, I think when you're designing an AI for an application in a given field, you cannot do some good work without experts from that field. This is why we're working hand in hand with doctors, having their feedback almost daily on what we are doing to make sure that we are doing something sensible and going in the right direction. Um, My PhD supervisors mentioned them earlier on. Aldo Faisal is a professor of AI here Matthew Komarovsky is a senior ICU clinician. So I have two supervisors, one an expert in AI, the other one expert in healthcare. And I, I need the feedback from both of those brilliant minds to be able to do proper work that makes sense, both on the AI side and on the healthcare side. Yeah, so whilst you were talking about um, communicating to the, uh, on a higher level, right? Uh, to be able to open the net for as much feedback and ideas, a diversity of thought. Do you think you could uh, almost like create a like machine learning or reinforcement learning method to do that exact thing? To be able to take things from a low level and bring it up to a higher level uh, like that? Well... I guess one way to do this would be to take inspiration from um, machine learning models that are now able to summarize some papers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and exactly. There exists something which takes you 10 pages of text and return you three paragraphs with the essentials. I guess this is already kind of that. But I also think that um, when you're trying to make what you're doing Research or not, by the way, could be a job in the industry, could be whatever. When you're trying to explain something that you're an expert in to a non-expert person, I think it's also about um, finding the level that will fit them. Mm. There is no single one high-level explanation that I can give of my project. The high-level explanation of what I do that I will give to people will depend on who I'm talking to and what I think will interest them more in what I'm doing. For example, if I'm 
talking with doctors. I'll talk a lot about the application mm -hmm. side. I'll talk a lot about um, the clinical framework in which we're evolving, the clinical workflows that we intend to maybe modify a little bit, the clinical problems that we want to tackle, what makes it so much more challenging. And sometimes, um, I mean, I've already had a chat with a with doctor who was like, oh, but maybe there is this other technique in medicine that is very close to what you do that maybe could solve your problem. And you know, at first, it's a technique that I had not heard about. Turns out it's something that is not exactly related, but I still learned that there is this thing that they use in medicine, and in this case it was to supplement your heart, mm. that we can supplement the heart for a very short period of time. It doesn't help with sepsis because you need to supplement the heart for a long time, but you know, if, if you were to keep somebody alive for a few minutes, then you could do this. Mm. Um, and I learned this from talking with doctor. I also, by talking with doctors, understand the problems that they face on a on a daily basis and what their relationship to AI is. I've had this discussion with a dermatologist a few months back uh, where I was asking her, um, what does she think about the AI models? Has she, first, has she heard about what was done in dermatology and AI? Because it, I'm in the field, so it's obvious that I've heard of it. But, you know, it's far from obvious for people outside of there to have heard what is happening. And she was like, yeah, yeah, I've heard that um, there are journals where people publish models that are able to detect whether something on your skin is malignant or not. But this is not what's going to help me use it. What I want is something on my phone that I can just pull out, look at the, the lesion on the skin, and it tells me what it thinks about it. And this is a realization I've had just from talking to her that there's still a big gap between research and clinical deployment in this case. Hmm. So that's for doctors. Lots of valuable insights you can get from doctors. But also from AI scientists. If I go talk to an AI scientist about the problem I'm working for, I'll tell them, I'll tell them that I'm working with Markov decision processes, uh, offline reinforcement learning, and I'm particularly interested in uncertainty estimation. I work with Bayesian models. All those terms I would never use with doctors, right? <laughs> because yeah. they, they would freak out at first. But just the same way, I won't use the medical jargon with, jargon with AI people. Yeah. But the AI people could tell me, well, we've already solved Markov decision processes with reinforcement learning agents that treat probability distributions in the Bayesian way and guide me towards articles and papers that do this, which would be amazing because then I would enlarge my knowledge on this side of things and get to know more, more stuff. Yeah. So to come back to your point of could you build an AI that explain things on a higher level to people, I think AIs that um, summarize points already exist, that mm -hmm. do text summary, they exist quite well. I think we had a guy in the department um, who has a startup that's doing this, um, presented a few weeks back. So it does exist. Mm -hmm. But I think what makes the art of communicating what you're doing is to tailor this communication to whoever you have in front of you mm -hmm. so that their feedback can be as valuable as possible. And even before considering whether is their feedback going to be valuable? Is at first, am I going to be able to get them interested in what I'm doing? So I suppose, um, yeah, you can't just have a natural language processing model because what you're missing is the context, right? The past experiences you can draw on for you and for them, the relationship, and also to hit an emotional point as well. Yeah, I feel like this is something that would work very well if all the useful data of the problem was available. 
Yeah. <laughs> but unfortunately, you can't have a, a vector of numbers that describes somebody to the extent where you know what they're into, uh, what their past life experiences have been, the relationship that you have with them. We're not anywhere close where you, you can have this type of information about someone just in a database. Hmm. Right? So, yeah. yeah, I think this is, you know, humans still have something to play <laughs> next to that. I'm personally of this. They're not going to replace us anytime yeah. soon. Yeah, so uh, on Markov decision processes and um, Bayesian methods, mm-hmm. um, could you could you explain how you're trying to quantify that uncertainty as well? Um, well, not going into too much details of what is for now unpublished work. Oh, sure. Uh, the, there is a theme in uncertainty estimation, which is there's not only one uncertainty that you're interested in, but there are there's actually rather two. Um, something can be random because it is actually random. If you flip a coin, it's just whatever's going to come come out in the end is random. Or it's not completely random, you tell me, because there are um, physical processes around or physical rules that rule how the coin's going to flip in the air and how the air is going to interact with the face of the coin, which make it so that you could have predicted what it is. But it's also very convenient because it's very hard to simulate those things to consider this random. You flip a coin, f- head, tails, it's just random. However, if I tell you, do you speak French? Me? Yeah. Uh, I have up to GCSE French. Up to GCSE French. <laughs> so if I tell you of the two words constitution and garderie, which one is about a house where you put little children? Garderie. Shit, you knew it. <laughs> <laughs> well, if I gave you t- two words that you didn't know the meaning of, um, the probability of you to get your answer correct to my question would have been 50% as well, just just mm-hmm. as flipping a coin, you know. Mm. But there was a way for you to get this information by going into Google Translate, <laughs> and you would have had the, the answer. So those are two different sources of uncertainty. One is something completely random happening in the world. Mm-hmm. The other one is I just don't have enough information to do this. Yeah. In the case of clinical decision support, uh, one is I'm in a place where I know the patient is going to um, be very sensitive to the treatment I'll give to them. Mm. So their response will be maybe a bit random and I'll have to be very careful about what happens to the patient. Yeah. The other one is just the model has not had enough information about what's happening there to give you a well-informed decision about what's going to happen. Mm, I see. And those are two very different things. And we were talking about explainability earlier on. Uh, well, it's pretty hard to, desi- to design explainability features around an AI model that people will be happy with. The notion of uncertainty is something that uh, all people who do science understand pretty well. Yeah. It's quite a common notion. So if you're able to quantify those things for doctors, it can help them taking more informed diagnosis based on the... Um, Data, sure. Yeah, or it can help them to uh, build more context or a be- better mental image mm-hmm. of whatever the system has uh, outputted them. Yeah, I suppose that's where the whole Markov processes come in because it takes data over the whole lifetime or 
uh, the time that the patient was hooked up. Yeah, mark of the decision process is just the fancy technical word to talk about words to talk about the world in which the reinforcement learning agent involves. Mm. Yeah, and I guess the Bayesian part is um, the exact probability part when yeah, you're, it's about when you're trying, you're trying to um, converge down to what you think yeah. you can predict, right? And just um, I think yeah, Bayesian Gaussian processes. Yeah, it's I remember seeing it as. Um, the the you can see where the where the curve like or kind of like diverges and you can see mm-hmm. what what where it is it is itself uncertain right so yeah it's it's quite a visual method as well it is very cool. visual yeah. awesome yeah so outside of AI and academia and work there was one amazing story that you told me about. Uh, Involving piano in stations around the world, so go go for it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, well, that that's pretty vague. <laughs> Coming back from the, where did I start from? Okay, I'll start from the the basics of when I was a child. I took classic piano lessons, but I wasn't really a fan of the very traditional way of teaching the instrument. Mm-hmm. And at some point, I just quit those lessons and started learning a little bit by myself by ear. This was a bit the same time when I started looking a bit about on the internet about what, what people are doing, right? And discovered a whole new landscape of music genres and things that people were doing with that instrument that I had never heard of because I had had a very classical teacher for a few years. Now I'm I'm very grateful for that teacher who taught me the basics and the, the technique and everything. But I'm also very grateful that I got to discover all this amazing type of music that there's around. Anyway um, this playing by here and discovering all the different other types of genres of music that could be played on the piano uh, led me to, um, at some point when I was in high school, um, I was waiting for my train in the morning and the eve- or rather in the evening in the station for me like 15-20 minutes and it just so happened that um, a French singer and pianist had funded the stations so that there would be pianos in the stations just as there is in london i think elton john paid for one of the the piano stations in london it was it's kind of the same vibe yeah probably the one in st pancras king's cross i think yeah yeah that, i think that's the one um so it was a piano in the station and i was like well you know what i may as well play over there if it's a good icebreaker to meet people I'm in a place where it's either this or I stand and I'm bored. <laughs> and if there's one person that comes by, gives me a tap on the, on the shoulder and tells me thank you, or I can start a conversation with someone and learn a bit more about them or make anyone's day better, then that's cool. It's just turned a situation in which I'm bored, haven't done anything, and this person just went on with their day to I played a bit of music, I maybe met people, or I maybe made someone a bit happier than they were. So it was, you know, all positives. So I played a little bit um, and really enjoyed my time at the, at the station. Like I met people with which I played regularly. I met very different singers. Uh, I had very different, pretty moving moments where the first one was I was playing music and then suddenly this little child comes at the end of the piano and he's like, oh, can you teach me how to play? <laughs> and you know, just seeing them the light in a child's eyes who's just um, got in touch with something they were attracted to because it seemed natural to them it was amazing 
not a very moving moment was um, we had this um, rock singer in France called Johnny Hallyday um, who was very well known in the country very well appreciated by a lot of people like if you check the videos of his funerals it, they everybody was out to him it was really impressive and he's a guy who uh, whose rock music was particularly appreciated to people who you how would you say wouldn't approach at first like you know big truck drivers uh, dressed in black <laughs> chains around their heads probably a big dog next to them like this kind of people you'd say those are rocks <laughs> and um, like maybe two three days after this guy had died um, I was playing one of his songs in the station I had this big truck driver dressed in black big chains come to me tap on my shoulder and be like thank you with a little tear off his eye I was like yeah wow. you know if you can <laughs> if you can move this type of people like it's this type of amazing experiences that I was kind of looking for when I was playing over there um, but go getting back to the story itself um, when I was in France uh, in engineering school it's quite a big thing to be part of societies and to organize stuff it just so happened that my the school I was part of um, organized yearly telex conferences and I was part of the team who was looking for speakers for, for, for this conference and as part of my discovery of what piano was like when I left um, the very classical training I discovered many different artists online that were doing many things with their with their instruments or going through very creative projects one of them uh, the guy's called Doton Negrin uh, he had a, a YouTube channel at the point who was called Piano Around the World. Uh, the story of this guy is uh, he was working as a real, real estate agent in the US for quite a bit of time, uh, wasn't really pleased by his job and felt attracted by music, so he started playing in the streets of New York, uh, got a piano down, played in the parks and whatever, and he, just very similar similarly to the interactions I had in the stations, well, the guy was a bit better at playing that, than <laughs> me and he did it to a completely different level it's in a city that was way bigger but I recognized myself a little bit in the experience that he had in the streets of New York and he liked it so much that he then put his piano in a van and toured the US played in all the major cities and all the major parks as well as in very small villages you know just getting to know people on the way he would drive stop at some point and be like oh this looks like a nice, nice spot play there for a few hours, maybe meet a few people, live his life, and go back to the van and go to the next place. He did this to, in the US. It was amazing. So then he did this for South America as well, because why not? You know, you've done yeah. the US, <laughs> why not do South America as well? So he did this in South America. Once he was done with South America, great experience. And he was like, hmm, what about Europe? He did Europe as well, went to, huge, to a huge tour of Europe. And again, traveling with his piano in the van, stopping in many different cities or villages. Um, there's a, a great video of him playing in a setup I'd love to play. Like he's in the Swiss Alps with a valley in front of him, like a little bit cloudy, a little bit rays of the sun coming up. <laughs> yeah, it looks amazing. Anyways, um, so I had heard of this guy's story and I thought that he would really be an amazing speaker for the TEDx conference we were organizing. Um, and just a few days after thought of inviting him, I realized that the guy was live on YouTube, playing in the streets of New York, just because the, originally he was doing this without recording himself, mm -hmm. but 
you know, he went through the whole YouTube thing to document his journey at first. And people started following him, so he started live streaming his performances in the streets. And I was like, well, the guy's there, I'm watching his YouTube live. Might as well just send him a comment being like, hey, do you want to do a TED talk? <laughs> to which he's grabbed his phone and he was like, yeah, let's do this. <laughs> it was amazing. And just from me sending a message at some point at like 10 in the evening to a guy who was playing piano at the other end of the world in the streets who just so happened to see a message amongst the tens of ones that were flown flying in this live stream ended up in him taking the plane to go to my hometown which is let's be honest not the biggest town in france and surely not the town people would go to to visit or he would have gone to naturally bringing this guy in having him give a talk in the theaters in which i had my lectures which was one of the most inspiring talks I've heard in my life. And spending a great weekend with this guy, taking him around the places I know and I love. And yeah, it was an amazing experience. All starting from me typing something on my phone's keyboard. Yeah, <laughs> that's, it just tells you, we were talking earlier on about how staying open to opportunities and you could almost say like leaving little seeds behind you and see which ones just so happen to grow. This this one grew into a very pretty flower. <laughs> it was it was an amazing weekend and definitely not one I'm I will forget. Uh, that's a wonderful metaphor, and uh, yeah, it just goes to show the the power of internet and everything like that, you know. And uh, you're just a few actions away from such great experiences, yeah, things yeah. you couldn't even imagine, right? <laughs> yeah, really. Well, if if people are curious, go check on YouTube because the, the old TED talks are uploaded on the TEDx YouTube channel. So go check uh, Dotan, D-O-T-A-N, Negrin, N-E-G-G-R-I-N. Uh, just look Dotan Negrin TEDx, you'll find his talk. And I think it was a great one. Once again, talking about leaving opportunities opened and catching things as they fly towards you and being open to everything. Amazing one. <laughs> yeah, and uh, I'll, I'll definitely be adopting your approach to things <laughs> <laughs> and continuing with that. Hopefully, some well, you never know. Maybe something like that will happen as well. Yeah. Just a few great actions. Just a few actions, you know. Just plant a bunch of seeds everywhere. So, okay. Uh, what are the next steps for you, do you think? <sighs> Very short term. Um, debugging my code on Monday morning. <laughs> <laughs> a bit less short term. Um, I really... I'm in a phase now where the first bits of my PhD have been very applied and as I've said at the, the beginning of our exchange today, um, a PhD is also about making a good scientific contribution and this is really what I'm chasing now. So I'm working on more theoretical aspects because I want to have this theoretical outcome out of my PhD. Uh, just also maybe not so much for the community but also for myself to prove to myself that if I decide to tackle a problem like this and if I want to push the state of the art forward and dedicate myself to it, work towards this goal, then I can achieve it. Um, and then longer term than this, well, it's about wondering what will I do after my PhD. Mm -hmm. I think there are two different directions that I find interesting. Um, so first of all, I don't think I'll stay into academia because, well, you know, never be close to opportunities once again to see how, mm -hmm. how things come in. 
but I really want to be amongst the people who develop the products and bring products to people. And I have the feeling for now that those things happen either by already established companies that use existing research and implement them in products. This is what ha what's happened, for example, with the magic erasers from, from Google, right? Mm -hmm. It's a paper that was published by academics. The academics were like, oh yeah, good, we have this technology. Google was like, yeah, let's put this into a product and have people use our magic eraser. They, I yeah. mean, they put a very fancy <laughs> name to it, but it's just this process of taking research and bring it into product and bringing value to people. This is really what I want to do. And so this is either, from what I've ob observed, where they establish companies or startups that spin out from academia and become this. So why not work from one of, for one of those? If the project I'm working on for now, the iClinician, turns out into a startup and I see that we can really have the amazing impact that it feels like we're going to have, then I'll be very happy to keep working with, with this team. Um, and yeah, so there's this route also. I think after the year, the year and my PhD, if there's no, like, opportunity I really feel like appeals me a lot or I feel like is the opportunity I was looking for I may spend a bit of time exploring uh, especially I'm curious about what happens in those massive huge companies you know those Google Microsoft Apple mm. for which I've never worked for yet those companies are companies that spent a lot of money to understand what is the best way to work and I'm sure that they're research departments or even their engineering departments um, yes they have the best people in their field undeniably but also they have with the time developed the the best working practices you know I feel like the reason why those uh, companies achieve such great results and why you know when DeepMind for example sh spits out a new algorithm that just so happens to be amazing is partly due to the fact that the people who work there are brilliant, they're amazing, they're, they're all geniuses, but also I feel like they have the proper way to work together, mm. uh, which I think is something that academia may have a lot to learn from, especially I feel like the spirit of working on a team to solve a problem is more present in industrial companies doing research and development rather than in, in academia. Um, so I'd be curious to see how those companies work. So possible paths, either one of those big companies because of the curiosity of how they work or um, in a team that will bring a product to reality, either a startup or a team within a company that works with new technology and brings it to the market. I'm not sure yet. Maybe even why not create my, go on my own venture if there is an idea that goes through a mind of one of my friends' mind, why not accompany them? But yeah, that's the direction. Yeah, you never know, like, all uh, those, I, I saw an article of a guy who applied his fluid dynamics research to waves in a movie, I think, maybe Pirates of the Caribbean or something like that, <laughs> won an Oscar for it, so, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> crazy, crazy things could happen, you know. Yeah, I'm not it's sure I'll have an Oscar in five years, but why not? <laughs> yeah, so, uh, where can people find your work, and how can they reach out to you? Um, that's a good question, let me just check my Twitter name. So I'm not very active on social media, but I guess 
the best places to follow the things I will be putting out for now are either my LinkedIn or my Twitter at pfester, P-F capital letters E-S-T-O-R. Um, I also plan on once I'll have two, three projects to showcase and to start this properly, um, starting a blog for myself, uh, you know, a standard website where I would explain maybe in lay terms and in on a higher levels the problems that I'm working on and the projects that I'm working on because this is something that I miss a little bit from academia. This I love the academic style of writing because it's very efficient and very rigorous. But also if you want to get more people involved into what you're doing, I have to admit, and I know for a fact, academic papers are not the most appealing thing <laughs> to read. Right? Sometimes a good old a good old blog post, which is a bit sometimes a bit more funny, a bit more illustrated, that allows itself a bit more than academic paper can be a bit more appealing and this is why I want to start this for myself once I'll have two three articles to showcase. So yeah, either LinkedIn, Twitter or once I'll advertise this a bit more, a blog that I'll do for myself. Wonderful, this has been great. Now Paul, you, uh, you have embodied the specialist that's wide and deep, you know. <laughs> I, I don't believe that that's a specialist that's only just focus on one thing and you've shown it today in all the, the dimensionalities you have in piano um, in your research and in judo and in just trying to understand yourself and digging deep so yeah. thank you very much Paul it's been a, it's been a pleasure it's been my pleasure it's fantastic